you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 21. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's on page 15. Genesis chapter 21. Uh, and welcome back to the book of Genesis. We have been away from our study in Genesis for two months. The last time we were in Genesis was the end of November. And so a, a very short uh, review is in order here. That There are two main and very broad um, um, outline for, for the book of Genesis. In chapters 1 through 11, we see what, what could be called the, the primeval history, the, the ancient history, uh, the, the origins of the world, really. We get in chapters 1 and 2 this, the, the, creation, <coughs> the, the creation accounts of how God brought everything into existence. Chapter 3, we get the fall of man, uh, the, the temptation from Satan, the, the deception uh, from Eve, the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the consequences of sin. And then from there, for the next several chapters, we see the evidence of how sin has broken everything. We see not long after the, the, the fall in the garden, we see, we see murder in chapter 4. We see um, many other evil things happening to, to the degree that the world was, was, was full of violence. So much so that God purified the world through a great flood. We keep going and we get to chapter 12 and we see a, a, a change in the, the writing, a change in, this, the, uh, in the book. In the next chapters from 12 to 50 is what we would call patriarchal history. And that refers to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his descendants. And so from chapter 12 on, it's all these great stories that we know about all these particular men that God used, this, this line of... Abraham. As we've walked through the book, even up to this part, uh, we've been tracing or following God's promise uh, in the garden after the fall. And the promise was in chapter 3, verse 15. It's a very, very important verse in the book of Genesis and really the, the whole Bible. But it's when God is kind of handing down the consequences and the punishment for the sin of, of Adam and Eve and punishment upon Satan himself. And in chapter 3, verse 15, we read this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's, he's talking to Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called uh, the, the first gospel. Uh, this is the first time in, in, in the Bible where we get this glimpse of redemption, of, of what is going to one day happen. And one day, God is going to make it right. One day, the offspring of the woman, the, a descendant of Eve, would bruise the head of the serpents. That is, crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent will bruise the heel of this offspring. We certainly understand that, that one day, this would happen finally and fully. As we keep reading our Bible, we know that ultimately, this, is, this defeat happened through the work of Jesus on the cross, where his heel was bruised in his crucifixion, but the head of Satan was crushed through his victorious resurrection. So with that in view, with, with this view of God's promise of this offspring, we, we've seen how the, the offspring has continued. 
The line has been preserved over and over again. God is preserving this line. We'll, we'll continue to see that throughout these chapters and have seen it in the first 20 chapters. God had promised an offspring. He, he had promised an offspring to Abraham as well. Last time we looked at the book of Genesis, we were in the opening verses of chapter 21. And there we saw how God fulfilled his divine promise to Abraham, which was in part an heir. Part of it was that he would have, a, have descendants. But in order to have descendants, you have to have a descendant. And so the birth of Isaac was promised. And at the beginning of chapter one, we see how at the appointed time, at God's appointed time, in God's great way, for his glorious purpose, that promise was fulfilled. The line of the offspring of Eve would continue. And after 25 years of waiting for Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah, now would come Isaac, born to Sarah. The promise of God to Abraham, uh, the promises were beginning to be fulfilled in part. We see that at the beginning of chapter 1 as the Lord visited Sarah and Isaac was born. And so as Isaac was born, there was great rejoicing, certainly. Certainly great rejoicing in the promise that was fulfilled through the birth of Isaac. And we come to verse 8 and we see just that, how Isaac is celebrated. Look at verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Uh, new life is always worth celebrating. And Abraham's doing that at this stage in Isaac's life. Abraham and Sarah's faith in God, in, in God's promises, must have, have only been increasing, you would imagine, as his promises were fulfilled. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? Family conflict was rising. Look at verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. That is, she saw Ishmael laughing. And so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on the count of his son. So at this point in, in the story of, of Genesis, Abraham, or Isaac here, we, we learned, has been weaned, uh, which probably meant in that culture that he was two or three years old. At this point, um, Ishmael would have been 15 or 16 years old. Okay, so we kind of get the age uh, separation there. And we find out in verse, uh, verse 9, that Ishmael is laughing at Isaac. And Sarah sees that. Um, which we, we might think, well, kids laugh at people all the time, right? What, what, what is the problem with, with laughing? But taken with several things, well, a couple things. One is the context in which what is happening, but also Paul picks this up in Galatians chapter 4. We'll look about that in a minute, look at that in a minute. But in Galatians chapter 4 verse 29, he says that Ishmael was persecuting or had persecuted Isaac. So with those things in view, we can conclude that, that Ishmael was not just simply laughing, but rather mocking Isaac. 
And again, given the context of what we're talking about and what Sarah says, uh, it may have been, it likely it was, considering the circumstance and the context, concerning him being the heir, concerning the inheritance. And though there's no indication here in the text of, of physical persecution or, or violence, the message is one of family conflict. The message is that there's conflict between these two brothers. For Hagar and uh, Ishmael, Isaac would have posed a threat to the inheritance of Abraham. So though we know the story, right? We know the backstory. We know that, that God had promised Abraham that, that his offspring would uh, be, be the descendant, would be the, the line. And we know the promise there. But, but Ishmael would have considered himself the heir of Abraham. Why wouldn't he? He was Abraham's son. And so when Isaac is born, uh, he rightfully would have seen Isaac as a threat to his inheritance. Uh, now there's this other son, there's this other son that, that is threatening what he might believe is his. In fact, not only did, did uh, Ishmael uh, likely consider himself the heir, but Abraham himself looked at, at, at Ishmael as the, the potential heir. And he had to be corrected of this in chapter 17. When, when he says to God, consider, consider Ishmael. Like, maybe Ishmael is actually the way this, this promise is fulfilled. And God says, no, it's going to be through your son that you would have with Sarah. And so Sarah then uh, asserts herself in verse 10. You see that again in verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this, this slave woman uh, shall not be heir with my son uh, my son Isaac. And so she asserts herself and he calls for Abraham to, to kick them out, basically. Kick them out of the family uh, so that there's no confusion here about who is the rightful heir. Now, the, the motivations for Sarah doing this may, may not have been completely pure. We know already that she has mistreated Hagar earlier in chapter 16. But she was not wrong about Isaac having the priority over Ishmael. That's exactly what God says. Uh, that, that point is what God makes in Genesis chapter 17, verse 19. That it would be Isaac, it would not be Ishmael, that would be the descendant, it would be the heir. Sarah saw Ishmael. She saw Ishmael as the threat, right? Ishmael may have saw Isaac as the threat. Sarah sees Ishmael as the threat. And so to protect her son, she calls for Abraham to send them away. And verse 11 tells us that all this was very displeasing to Abraham. After all, you, you need to remember, this was his son. This wasn't just some, some kid. And this was the mother of his son. No matter what the circumstances were, those two things were still true. But we can actually understand the responses of all the people involved here, can't we? But we can understand all the responses. They, they make human sense. Ishmael felt threatened by Isaac, so he mocks him. He persecutes him. Sarah sees Ishmael as a threat to her son, to the inheritance, so she wants him out. Abraham caught in the middle. Either way he goes, someone is going to be unhappy. We, we can see why there is this tension now, just because we understand, though, uh, doesn't mean that all the responses 
are equally right or, or are righteous. Sarah's actions were protecting her own interests without concern for Hagar and Ishmael, right? She, she didn't care about them. Get them out. I don't care what happens to them. I'm protecting my son. I'm protecting what I know is right. And yet, as much as we might say, man, that seems pretty harsh of, of Sarah to kick them out. And Abraham's not happy about this. But look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of, of, your, uh, of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. And every wife said, <laughs> yeah, right. For, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Some of you want to like go stitch that on a pillow somewhere. <laughs> sorry, sorry, man. You're going to find that needle pointed into your bed at night, into your, your pillow when you lay down. All right, let's get back to it. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 13, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God tells Abraham, actually, listen to Sarah. Do, do, what, do what she's telling you to do. Send Hagar and Ishmael away. Cast them out. Man, that still doesn't quite sit right for us, does it? But why would God do that? Let, let's note a couple things. One thing we should note is that God did not send Ishmael and Hagar away because they were bad. This wasn't punishment against Ishmael or against Hagar. God was not punishing them. In fact, verse 13 tells us that God repeated his promise to make Ishmael a nation. He repeated it because he told Hagar that in chapter 16, verse 10. So God had a plan for, for Ishmael. God wasn't done with, with Ishmael. And then the verses, we'll read them in a minute, verses 15 through 21, describe how God cares for Hagar and Ishmael. So it was not like God was punishing them and, and banishing them to the wilderness to, to never be uh, heard from again or anything of that nature. Secondly, we, we might understand uh, the reason for the separation as the conflict between these two sons may have been inevitable. Meaning as they grew up, this was, this was only going to get worse. And so separate them now. Separation may have been necessary at this point. Additionally, the separation may have been uh, a preparation. A preparation for Abraham. Because in the very next chapter, which we'll see in two weeks, chapter 22, we hear this memorable story of what God calls Abraham to do to Isaac. This, this potential separation that, that God is calling Abraham to make with Isaac. So this may have been this, this sense of pre preparing Abraham for that. But finally, we, we actually see one of the reasons in verse 12. Which says, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to do, do as she tells you for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now God was making it very clear to Abraham that the offspring, the, the, the one who would carry on the name, the, the line from Abraham, the line from whom the offspring who would crush the head of the serpent would be through Isaac. The separation affirmed that Isaac was the promised son, not Ishmael. Well, no matter the reason, 
When God calls, we must obey, right? So when God says to Abraham, do this, we must obey. And this is just another step in the journey of Abraham's faith. And so Abraham responds in verse 14. Look at verse 14. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread in a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, put it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness with Beersheba. In two weeks, Pastor Chris is going to preach for us through chapter 22. But in chapter 22, when God tells Abraham to do what he did with Isaac, look at 22 just for a second. I won't get to point this out, so I'm going to point it out now. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. Look back to verse uh, 14 of chapter 21. So Abraham rose early in the morning. We see a connection here. When, When God called Abraham to do what he did with Ishmael, he obeyed right away. When God called him to do what he did with Isaac, he obeyed right away. This is, this is a, an example to us. He is giving to us the, the, the response that we are to have as well. Abraham obeyed God's command. Now, it doesn't mean that Abraham still was not disappointed. Right? Remember, it, it displeased him what, what was about to happen. It displeased him that that they were being sent away, and yet he obeyed the Lord anyways. Whatever God is up to, it's for our good, and it's for his glory. And that may not make sense to us. We may not even agree with him. But if God is calling us to do it, we must trust that he knows best. Why? Because God is good, because God is with us, and because God is for us. And if those things are true, then whatever he is calling us to do is the right thing to do. Even if it displeases us. When God speaks, we must listen. He is the creator king. He has authority and command over all aspects of our life, even the aspects that we disagree with him on. Insert your disagreement here. Whatever it is. You say, well, I don't think I agree with God about that. Okay, You obey anyways. Why? Because he is king. Because he calls. And when he calls, we obey. Because he knows more than you and I know. Every aspect of our life, God has authority over. And when God calls, we must obey. We can move through this story as a kind of matter of fact. But these were real people. There are real relationships here. This was really his son. This was really the mother of his son. This slave woman and this this son were really cast out of a family. They were sent out. Get out of here. We should feel the weight of that. And as crazy as that might sound to us, we should also acknowledge why this impossible situation for Abraham even was brought about. And the reason it was brought about is because of his own sin. Abraham took himself into this problem. We look at it and say, man, there's no way out of this. Look, there's no good thing here. Whatever I do, Abraham might think, it's going to be bad on either side. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
It is going to be bad on either side. Why? Because Abraham decided at a point in his life that he was going to take matters into his own hands. With his wife's urging, he thought they would help out God by fulfilling the promise of a descendant through a woman not named Sarah. And what could go wrong with such a plan? The truth is that sin complicates everything. Sin complicates everything. You know this. I know this. But we, we don't just have to see it in Abraham's life. We know it in our own life. We know that sin ruins everything. It complicates our life. So many of our problems stem from our refusal to obey God the first time. Think about the problems that, that you've encountered in your life. How many of them actually were avoidable? Had we only obeyed God the first time? Now, we're not perfect, are we? And we can always look back and say, I shoulda, coulda, woulda. Fair. And yet, the truth still remains. Now, we obey God. We obey him because he is God. We obey him because he alone is worthy and has all authority. That is true. We obey his word, not, not just because of the outcome, but because of him being holy. His commandments are good. But we also know this, that deviation, any deviation from his word leads to problems. It leads to ruin. That's why Jesus said that there's, there are two roads in life. There's a wide road and there, there's a narrow road. He, he, he helped us understand this. Right? The wide road leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to life. Which one will you choose? What's behind door number one? Like What, what, what is the problem here is, is our own sinful hearts. Now God is still God and nothing can derail his will. Right? Here's the good news. Right? Here's the good news for us. We've all sinned. We've all failed. We've all complicated our lives. That's all true. But God still does work all things together for good according to the counsel of his will for those who love him. That's still true. Another writer says, God was taking, in this situation with Abraham, God was taking up the tangled threads of his servant's life, weaving them into his own divine pattern, overruling everything for good. That's what God does. He takes even the bad stuff and he works it together for good. But that doesn't mean that the consequences of our actions disappear. We still feel those consequences. And I might add, no one thinks this is actually going to happen to them. Right? No one actually thinks their sin is going to complicate their life. Like we see it in everybody else. Hey, years ago, there was a gentleman who was being confronted in his sin. And he wasn't listening. And a family member uh, shared that at a, a point before that, this individual was on the other side of confronting someone in sin. And they had said, man, if a group of godly men came to me and said, you're, you're in sin, you need to repent, I sure hope I'd, I'd believe them. And yet now, this many years later, on the other side of the equation, in, in unwilling to repent, no one thinks it's going to be them. And yet... It can be as true for you and me as it was for him. 
We see it so clearly in other people, yet we're blind to it in our own life. Abraham is a cautionary tale of the consequences of sin, the consequences of unfaith. May God give us eyes to see our own sin, to see what could be sin, what, what we're being led into. And may he give us faith to believe and to obey. Well then, Abraham obeys God. He gives provisions to, to Hagar and Ishmael, and he sends them away. Look at verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she sat, then she went and sat down opposite him in a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Again here, we, we might feel the despair, and we ought to feel the despair uh, in Hagar as a mother. Of seemingly out of options, out of, out of water. The provisions are gone. She doesn't want to actually see what's about to happen. But really what, what's happening here, as, as sensitive as we can be to Hagar, there's this actually an act of unfaith as well. And why do we know that? Because God had made a promise to Hagar as well. Back in chapter 16, God had told her what was going to happen with Ishmael. That Ishmael would be a nation. That God was going to take care of him. That there was, there was a future for Ishmael. But despite the, the, her lack of faith, what we find is that God still intervened. God heard, we're going to see in verse 17, not, not Hagar. Who did he hear? Look at verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. A again, a repetition of what he's already said. Verse 19, the Lord opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin of the water and gave the boy a drink. And the Lord was with the boy, and he grew up. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran, and the mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Here, in the midst of great hardship, God hears, God acts by graciously caring for Hagar and Ishmael. He is near to the brokenhearted, the psalmist says. Though God had promised Hagar, that Ishmael will be a great nation. In the darkness of this moment, we find her doubting. We find her doubting what God has said. It has been said, don't doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. It's easy to doubt in the dark. And the invitation here is to, to hold on to the promises of God. The same God who made the promise in the light is the same God in the dark. We should also note here in the text uh, the number of references to God that come out. That God is the, the central actor in this, in this story. If you look all the way back to verse 1, the Lord visited, this is chapter 21, verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. We come to verse 2, the Lord, or excuse me, God had spoken. Verse 4, God commanded. 
Verse 6, God made laughter. Verse 12, God said. Verse 17, God heard. God called. God has heard. Verse 19, God opened. Verse 20, God, ha- God was with the boy. Pastor Stephen Lawson says, the chief purpose of the word of God is to reveal the God of the word. The chief purpose of of the word of God is to reveal the God of the word. And what are we learning about God? That God cares, that God is active, that God is paying attention, that in darkness and in struggle and in hardship and even when sin has complicated our life, God is still with us. We ought not to miss that God is at work even in these things. These things of Abraham's life and the things of our life. In the dark and in the light. In these verses, we have seen a contrast. We've seen two sons. We've seen Isaac and Ishmael. We've seen two mothers, Hagar and Sarah. And all of this points actually to something more. The Apostle Paul actually makes this clear for us in Galatians chapter 4. So I invite you to turn quickly to Galatians chapter 4. You don't have to turn quickly. We're going to go there quickly. You can turn as slowly as you would like. In your Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, page 974. The Apostle Paul makes this connection between this story and something else. And in verse 22, he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Okay? Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. So Paul is going to take this story and show how this story actually points to something, uh, something else. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Two covenants, goes on. One is Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, heavenly Jerusalem. She is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren woman, Who does not bear? Break forth and cry aloud. You are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So there's two things happening here, or there's there's two uh, there's the the two sons, the two mothers are pointing to two covenants: the old covenant and the new covenant. Warren Wearsby gives this uh, summarization or explanation. The Apostle Paul saw in the event an allegory involving the law of Moses and the grace of God. That's the old covenant and the new covenant. Sarah represents grace. That's the heavenly Jerusalem or the Jerusalem that is above. Hagar represents the law, the earthly Jerusalem under bondage. The lesson is simply that God's children are to live under the blessing of grace, not under the bondage of the law. And so what Paul is trying to do is is help the the Christians in Galatia recognize that they're no longer under the law as binding to them in order for them to be saved. There's a new covenant. When Christ came, there's a new covenant. The old covenant has been uh, done away with. There's a new covenant in Jesus. Look at verse 28. Now, brothers, like Isaac, now you, brothers, 
like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, let's talk about Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. That's Isaac. So also it is now. So those born of the flesh, those who are not in Christ, persecute those who are. But what does the scripture say? Quick note here. He goes on to quote. He quotes Sarah. He is quoting Genesis chapter 21. And he says, but what does the scripture say? You want to know what the apostles thought about the Old Testament? They believed it to be the scripture. They believed it to be the word of God. Not only did Jesus himself quote from the Old Testament, now we have Paul quoting from the Old Testament, calling it scripture. So the New Testament writers understood the Old Testament to be authoritative. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. I know that's a lot to take in. We're getting two covenants and two women. What's the point? The point is this. The question to the reader is then, which child are you? Which mother do you have? Is your mother Hagar or is your mother Sarah? Are you, a, are you a child of promise? Are you a child of the flesh? Verse 28, Paul calls the, Galatians, the Galatian Christians children of promise. You brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. Meaning you're not, you're not a child of the flesh. You're not a child of, of works. Ishmael was, was a uh, a child of works. Abraham took matters into his own hands and tried to make something happen. That's a work. Isaac was a miraculous birth of God. A child of promise. First Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. How are we a child of promise? But if we are born again by God, verse 29 says, born of the spirits. That means that we're not physically born of Abraham, but we're spiritually God's children through the spirit. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Then verse 31 tells us that the children are the, of the free woman are no longer in bondage. No longer in bondage to, to, the, to the law. No longer in bondage to what was, but rather they are citizens of a new Jerusalem, the, the new heaven, Philippians 3, 20. The through line of God's promises here is grace. That's what, that's what we're seeing through all of this, isn't it? And grace is that, that God works, God acts without any merit of our own. It is God's work. He moves first. It is God who saves. It's God who opens blind eyes. It's God who gives faith. Salvation is the work of God. It is the grace of God. It is not of works that we have done, but according to the mercy and grace and great love of God. And that is what we see each time we take of the bread and the cup in the communion service. Where in thanksgiving, we remember the body of Jesus that was pierced for our transgressions and the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins. As children of promise, 
we understand what these symbols represent for it is by the work of Jesus that we have become children of God. And if you've believed on Jesus as your Savior, if you're walking in fellowship with him, if you are a child of promise, a child of God, we invite you in just a few minutes to to, uh, join us in remembering the sacrifice of Jesus for us. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, you would be what what Paul refers to as a a child of of the flesh or according to the flesh. If you've never repented, if you've never trusted Christ alone for salvation, then we ask for you to, to not take of these elements this morning. But rather, instead of receiving elements that represent Jesus, that you would receive Jesus himself. That is, his forgiveness as you repent and believe on him by faith. Come to him now. Repent of your sins and receive the eternal life through his grace. God, we thank you for your son. His work on the cross to give us life. Eternal life that starts now and lasts forever. Life to the full. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God.